welcome to another episode of Making It to the Mic. I'm your host, Stephanie Pam Roberts, and today I'll be chatting with Shelly Baez. Shelly is a bilingual voice talent who works in commercials, e-learning, children's media, animation, and more. Today we talk about what it's like to work in both the Spanish and English markets, and what similarities and differences there are in the style of reads. We also found ourselves talking about life outside of voiceover as well, which is a really important and fun conversation. So let's listen in. Here's my conversation with Shelly Baez. Hi, Shelly, and welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Hi, Stephanie. I'm great. Glad to be here. Thank you so much for coming. So I always like to start every episode with the same question, which is, how did you make it to the mic? What did you do before voiceover and how did you get into it? Yeah, I actually like to say that I slipped, tripped, and fell into voiceover um, simply because I actually started on the back end, pretty much on the client side that we don't often see. I was working um, right out of college as a sales assistant at um, Univision Networks, which is a Spanish language television network, and they had a radio station as well. So I started off interning in the promotions department, moved up to sales. And while I was in the sales department, that's where I got to know the customers and what commercials they wanted to plan and things like that. And so I started getting pulled into the booth. Essentially, if a client hadn't found a voice or if it was a last minute thing and they just needed someone, they would pull me in and say, hey, here, read this. They'd throw me a script. And I didn't know any, I didn't have any formal voiceover training at the time. So I was just kind of reading it. I do still have some of those spots and they're, oh my God, I never would share those publicly. <laughs> but to be honest, I'm glad I, I kind of went in that way because um, although it wasn't my priority, I wasn't gearing up to become a voice actor back then. I got a taste and I really did like it, but I put it in the back burner. I went back to marketing. That was like my goal at the time. And Ended up moving around and going to different companies and moving to Madrid for two years, moving back and finally back to New York. At the time, by the way, um, at the beginning of our story, I was in Florida, so I kind of moved markets as well. And finally went back, came back to New York where I was born. And 2015, I decided that I was going to start taking acting classes and see what I could do artistically and ended up in Paula Birdie's class intro to um, animation voiceover, and it really opened my eyes to really, really going at it full on for voice acting and kind of like just sped up all the process. So, you know, started working on the the top five things you must do, right? Demos and training and all of that. And um, got the ball rolling. And by I would say by 2017, I was already starting to book things. Um, so, yeah. So that's kind of how I ended up on the mic. <laughs> I love that. I think you're the first person, actually, who's come from a radio background. So that's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I was only on the actual radio station, you know, as like a guest or whatever, a couple of times because they would have like a little prank um, morning. The morning show would have like a prank session. And uh, a couple of times I got pranked myself. So that's how I ended up on the actual radio. But most of the time I was doing spots, like commercial spots for the radio and for the TV station. It's kind of (laughs) wild. Yeah, that's so interesting. Did they give you any direction or were they like, oops, we don't have anybody here. You read this. 
Sometimes they would give me directions. It depended on the actual client. Um, I remember clearly one time I did a commercial for like a nightclub, right? So it was very sultry. And I felt out of place. I was like, oh my God, why am I doing this? It was very sexual sounding, you know, sensual voice. At the time, I was 22. I was definitely not like ready to to put on that voice for the public. And weeks later, it ended up on the radio and I got a phone call from my dad. And he's like, did I just hear your voice on the radio? And I was like, uh, maybe. <laughs> I was like, of all the spots that you could have heard, it's the one where I'm like sexual healing or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like a sell, like a very sensual voice. Oh. That's amazing. So once you took that first class, what was your kind of next step after that? You, you know, you said that you really loved it and you kind of felt like this is what you wanted to do. So did you take more classes, make a demo kind of where where did you go next? So I actually um, started taking more classes. You know, first off, when I was in Paul Liberty's class, I just signed up for the next one he did. You know, I kind of just try to keep myself learning. Um, I also had some private coaching. And then finally, I found Voice Actors of New York. I really wish I would have found it earlier. But I think when I joined, we were just kind of starting out. And I remember being in um, another Facebook group, Women in VoiceOver, and someone tagged or asked about New York, and Karin wrote, or somebody wrote, I know that I just saw Karin's name, and she said, yeah, we have a group, and that's how I joined. Once I joined there, then it all became really serendipitous, but also a lot of networking, you know, a lot of getting to know friends and people in the industry and, you know, kind of putting my face out there. I was very well aware that being bilingual, fluently bilingual just by birth, gave me an advantage. And so I wanted to make sure that I made the right connections to, you know, get myself in those rooms. Still working at it. Obviously, it's never ending for any actor, right? We have to continuously work at our craft and and grow. But yeah, I mean, essentially training, training, training. And then a year later, I did my first demo. And even so, this year, I'm, pla- I'm planning on updating my demos because I feel like five years, six years later, I've grown so much. I want to be able to have fresh demos. What demos did you make first? A commercial and animation? Commercial and narration. Commercial first, actually, just just commercial. And then I did a narration and then finally an animation. And now, um, later on, I've made a children's multimedia. So like K through 12 narration and toys with Lisa Biggs. And I just finished a, um, a promo demo um, for more for like child centric, you know, like younger audience centric promo demo. So it, it's been a slow like crawl through the demo fields. Yeah, I think that's important, though. I think a lot of people get overwhelmed when they start because everybody says, well, you have to make your demos like your demos are important. And that's super true. But it's it is a process like I would say definitely to start with a commercial and then go from there. You know, don't make them all right away because you'll be broke, first of all. And second of all, like maybe you're not really that suited for a certain genre or maybe you don't even like a certain genre. So there's no point in making a demo if you don't even really want to pursue that area. One thousand percent. My advice is always to kind of take the time to listen to yourself to see what kind of projects draw you in. For example, for myself, I'm not so much. I learned really early on after recording a few, which were great, that I am not an audiobook person. <laughs> that mm-hmm. takes a, an entire set of skills that I I totally commend people that do that. But I realized that I was 
more interested in children's multimedia, meaning, you know, apps and um, e-learning and animation and things that were geared toward the younger audience. And so I started to switch my gears toward making demos that were related to that, marketing related to that, and um, keeping my, of course, my options open. So I do all sorts of voiceover, everything you can imagine. But I, I definitely focused in terms of the money that I was investing in demos. I focused it on children's multimedia. So I agree with you. I think that Give it some time to figure out what you want because, you know, it doesn't make sense to just spend money in vain. But I do think that a commercial demo is really useful to have. I think that's the money that's well spent because you really do require a lot of good production to make it sound like an actual commercial you would hear on the air, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and for it to flow and for them to know your strengths and whatever. So I do think a commercial demo is worth the money to start out, you know, and and it'll also get you a lot of auditions and you'll start, you know, hopefully booking and then you can pay for the other demos, you know? Right. Exactly. Yeah. I think especially now in these COVID times, it's, it's a strange, I feel like the path used to be a lot clearer, like take a class, make a demo, get work. And now it's like, take a class, make a demo, but there are no studios open or very limited studios. So it's kind of like the lines have gotten a little grayer. But I still think that that having that demo, especially a demo made by like a a professional expert demo maker is so important. And yeah, you're right. It's it is really difficult now because at least for myself, you know, the demo that I did during COVID, which was the promo demo, it was a matter of me recording on my mic at home, sending my clips over if I had if we had any retake, you know, it was a lot of home studio production. Whereas other demos that I did were in studio with the director, you know, a little bit more involved. So I do think that there there are challenges, but there are also advantages to that, too, because everybody needs a home studio that's nicely prepared nowadays, you know. When did you build your home studio? Oh, geez. So my first home studio was, I used to live in Queens. I live in Brooklyn now. And my first apartment in Queens was like two blocks from the train at the Roosevelt Roosevelt Avenue, which is, uh, for those of you that don't know by listening, it's an above ground train. <laughs> and it's like a very busy train station. Such a busy train station. And all you hear is like, the. so it was, I don't know how it worked, but it was an actual coat closet super tiny. Luckily, I'm five foot tall. So we we like, you know, we did the whole like foam and and, you know, in the closet. But it was so small that I couldn't like put in an actual mic stand. I had to like hang it upside down from my coat closet uh, rod. Um, so it was absolutely makeshift. But from there, I did book a lot. I recorded and it was surprising. Then I moved to another apartment, got a little bit better. But right now, my current apartment that I just moved in February is my best so far. They have all been home studios that are built by me because I have not lived in apartment buildings that allow a whisper room or, um, you know, studio bricks or any of the fun stuff. So I actually um, have a I like to call it a Harry Potter style under the stairs room. Right Ooh. now, I um, we got a two-story duplex. So we have a set of stairs internally that go to the second level. And so underneath those stairs is a closet for storage, but also for Shelly's. <laughs> and so we have um, outfitted it with, you know, um, acoustic foam, 
Uh, I have a producer's blanket that goes over the door from vocal booths to go. And then I have um, like a little curtain with a moving blanket that also blocks off sound. So I'm pretty well taken care of. Also, I've updated my gear. So I started with a Rode um, NT1A mic. And um, it was my trusty friend until this past year where in, I want to say it was November, I bought myself a Neumann TLM 103. Nice. So that's what I'm talking on right now. And um, I also have two interfaces because I started with an Apollo Quad 8, um, which is great, is a really big interface. And um, for my this booth currently, I needed something compact and small that it can come into the booth with me and my laptop. So I got the solid state SSL two plus. As you can see, I'm not a techie. <laughs> I just I just use the Sweetwater.com chat for everything. But yeah, so I do think my gear helping is helping a lot with the new space. Yeah, I think that's that's come up a lot actually on on the podcast, and it's so important. But it's I think it's worthwhile to hear different people say it in different ways, kind of over and over again to make the point that it's what's best for you and your space. Like you could buy that TLM 102, 103 microphone and put it in your kitchen. It's going to sound terrible. It doesn't matter that it's a thousand dollar microphone. So I think it's super important to just have that, you know, knowledge that each mic is going to sound different, not only on each person, but in everybody's different spaces. Yeah. And one thing I noticed, too, is that, um, you don't have to have, you know, obviously a whisper room and a studio bricks is like the, you know, the top of the mountain, some people think in terms of home studio, right? You don't necessarily need to have that. You can have a great sounding studio that you built yourself. And I think that's something that people should keep in mind. I book a lot and I work a lot from my studio and producers, I've never had a complaint. So that's always really nice to know (laughs) that you don't have to buy, you know, a beautiful piece. Now, don't get me wrong. If my apartment allowed it, I would absolutely save up and buy one. I want one. I'm just saying you don't have to have one. My first few home studios were also in various apartments in New York City. And and it worked, you know, you make it work. And and again, it was about not only the the sound treatment of the space, but the gear inside, because I had a Shure SM7B, which was great because it didn't pick up the extra noise. But then once I was ready to kind of upgrade and we moved into a house and built a better, more soundproof room in a quieter area, I was like, ooh, I can get the TLM-102 now. Yeah. Um, apartment hunting in New York City when you're a voice actor is is an experience, you know. Um, there's so many things that you keep in mind. It's it's hilarious because when I was looking for this apartment, we were like, we'd go to an apartment, and the first thing I would do is go into the closets or into like the spaces and like so smart, yeah. I, or like stand by a window and hear like what can I hear from the outside, you know. So it is it is a special a special experience when you're trying to find a space in such a busy city like New York City. Yeah. As I like to tell my daughter, you have to put your listening ears on. And, you know, it would be good if you could visit the apartment at different times or if you have friends in the area to kind of ask, like, is it loud at night here? Or, you know, are the trains busier one time of day or another? Because all of that is so important and you don't think of it. And I lucked out with great neighbors, although our our last apartment in the city, our neighbors were amazing and they were lovely people. But their TV was on the wall that we shared 
to my office. Oh, no. They, I could tell when they were watching Stranger Things. I could tell when they were watching Friends reruns just because I could hear the music. And it was fine when I was when we were in the room, I was like, ooh. But then, you know, in the booth, I didn't really hear it, but I just kind of knew it was there. And so I was always paranoid, like, is that coming through? I hope not. So it, it's challenging because you, you never quite know what the neighbors are going to be like and what sort of noise, you know, just might be floating around. But I totally feel exactly how you have. I've had neighbors just like that where they are so loud. They're great, but the the walls are just too thin. That's the one thing about this apartment that I'm loving is that we're in an interior part and we're also in the back of the building and um, the walls are very thick. We can't hear anything from anywhere from any neighbor. And my next door neighbor, particularly, I asked them as soon as we moved in, I was like, hey, just let you know that, you know, my husband, who is a preschool music teacher, was doing is doing virtual classes and I'm a voice actor. So I'm like, you know, this is what we do for a living kind of thing. And uh, I said, so if we ever get loud, you know, I apologize. And they were like, no, we never hear anything and you won't hear anything from us either. I was like, "Okay," So it kind of just worked out in this case. But I agree. Um, It's it's really hard to see when you go visit an apartment, like just one visit. It's hard to tell how it's going to be for a voice actor. (laughs) So I'd love to shift gears and ask you about being bilingual in the voiceover industry. Now, do you have demos that are only in Spanish and then only in English? Do you have clips of Spanish on your English demo? How does that work? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that because that was one of those things that it wasn't a challenge, but it was an added thing to my to-do list when I first started fully pursuing voiceover. And that was, I want to pursue it both languages. That means I have to shell out money and get two different demos of every topic. And for the most part, I just started in English knowing that you know, maybe more of the work is there or whatever. But um, every time they would ask for a Spanish, you know, I'd be like, yes, I can do it, but I don't have it yet. And then slowly I started building up more. I have like a a Spanish demo that's like a placeholder, I like to say, because I'm working with a producer to update my Spanish demo this year. That's mostly for commercial. But for narration and for children's multimedia, once I did my other um, demos, I kept that in mind. And so I made, for example, with my children, uh, K-12 narration, I have one in English and one in Spanish. Like, I just kept it in mind. So um, I do have doubles of everything, pretty much, because a lot of the clients that I work with that are solely Spanish language, they want to hear the Spanish language of whatever genre you're showing them. With English, it's not necessary, but I do know that Sometimes people claim to know Spanish, like they put it on the resume or they, they, you know, say yes to an audition or whatnot. And then they show up and they actually don't pronounce Spanish natively. And so it's like an added issue. So I think um, a lot of clients that are primarily casting English roles and, you know, have some Spanish roles come in, I think that they they probably want to see the skill level, right, of your Spanish. Right. I'd also love to know... What are the trends in, let's just say, in in commercials? So, you know, the trend for English, American, U.S. commercials is super conversational, relaxed, like you're talking to your friend, not announcery. What are the specs for for a Spanish commercial, a Spanish language commercial? Are they the same or are the styles and reads different? I think that they're reflective of, of, you know, the mainstream. I think they are more conversational as well. There's a thing that happens when you're speaking Spanish where it does just automatically sound a little bit more formal. I wouldn't say super announcery. Some some 
you know, male voices tend to go more announcery, right? Um, because, for example, we have that most famous soccer, you know, announcing voice where it's like, go! Like, there's just a lot of things that are very cultural to Latinos and to Hispanic Americans and people that speak Spanish that transcend. It has nothing to do with specs. It's just like, do you get the flavor, you know? Um, so, yeah, the specs tend to be pretty similar, pretty the same, but you do get a little bit more announcery in some cases on Spanish language TV. And it's it's still not not that I'm saying it's acceptable, but it's still, you know, you see it a lot. You still see a lot of um, announcery kind of voices in in Spanish language media. When you're speaking Spanish, let's say to elders or to strangers, which in that case, when you're doing voiceover, that's kind of the mentality the Spanish language takes on is like the more formal, I would say like the they, if you're if you're thinking about grammar. So, you know, there is more words that we use that are very formal versus the informal um, and not to get into like a whole, you know, Esau lesson or anything. But yeah, I definitely think it's just a cultural thing. And it also depends on dialect. So I myself come from, uh, my family comes from the Dominican Republic. So we are Caribbean and we tend to have a very um, slang riddled, I would say almost like a Southern U.S. version of Spanish, like very chill. They drop off S's, you know, very conversational, very quick when they speak um, versus a Mexican-American Spanish or a Mexican Spanish, which is much more formal and clear. They pronounce every consonant and every vowel, you know, a little bit more complete. So as a voice actor, I had to train myself to have more what they call the neutral general Spanish, you know, Latin American Spanish so that I could sound more Mexican, essentially, um, because unless they ask for a Caribbean accent, it's way too informal for most voiceover jobs, you know? Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, I was going to ask, is there, you know, because even in, in the uh, English version of things, sometimes we get like, must have a slight Southern accent, or, you know, they want it to sound like it's from a specific region. So I was curious if if you encounter that in in the Spanish voiceover as well. Absolutely. They do still ask, you know, sometimes it's it's very, very clear that they want Puerto Rican or Cuban or, you know, Mexican or Argentinian. And they all have different dialects, different ways of speaking. Um, oftentimes it's just general Latin American Spanish. And the reason I keep saying Latin American Spanish is that it is not Castilian. It's not Spanish from Spain, which has a totally different sound. Um, it has to be more of Latin American Spanish um, when they say that. <laughs> you know what I mean? I guess I like to compare it to how when you learn um, English, British English, there's different dialects, right? Like Cockney and you know, all of that. I personally am not that great at, um, at doing a British impression, and um, I guess I should work on it. But I definitely feel confident to dip into different accents when it comes to Spanish, you know, and I think it just comes from upbringing, listening and mimicking. So how often do you audition for the same spot in both languages? Ooh, um, I would say I usually get either or, but a lot of times I will get, you know, a spot that's going to be run on both markets and then they're looking for both um, the Spanish voiceover and the English and I audition for both. 
I don't know. It's it's hard to say like numbers wise. I would say maybe like 60 percent I'm doing one or the other. 40 percent I'm doing both, you know, for the actual job. Yeah. Like I'm auditioning for both at the same time. Is that what you were asking? Yeah. And I guess how often do you book both? How often are they like seeking both? That's that's kind of I would say that's kind of rare. And I say that only because sometimes I only get sent the Spanish copy. It depends on if I'm getting the work through an agent or through casting director and depends on what roster they've put me on. So if I joined an agency as a Spanish VO, most likely I'm going to get only their Spanish VO stuff. If I joined as a bilingual, I'll get both English and Spanish. Sometimes I just get English from certain agents. It just kind of you just roll the dice. Um, in terms of my own personal direct marketing, there I can, you know, pinpoint and I've done a lot of work that is both languages because I, I'm able to put myself out there and say, hey, listen, I can speak both languages. I can knock them both out if you need to. And then that's where I feel like I get more success in doing both languages on the spot. Yeah. And what an asset to the client. You know, they can just hire one person and be like, OK, English, go. OK, Spanish, go. Absolutely. That's pretty much one of the reasons why when I book those, I book them because it's like you can do it both in one session. You know, it's it's like saving money for the client in a way and also earning me more money because I get to, you know, yeah, it's it's like that. <laughs> Tell us about the process of how you found your agent or agents. How many agents do you work with? I found my agents through referrals, all of them. Mm. And it's crazy how one day I seriously put it out in the universe. I was like, you know what? I'm ready for representation. Like, I'm going to start looking to get a, an agent. And within, like, I don't know, a month and a half or so, I was getting people that I didn't even ask. I didn't say, like, hey, can you refer me? I'm trying to reach out to this person. It was more like, hey, I heard that this agent is looking for, you know, bilingual VO. Submit. I, you know, I'll vouch for you. And so through there, I was able to get a lot of awesome agency partnerships. Currently, oh, my gosh, I've, I feel like I've lost count. And it sounds like super gloaty saying that. But the reality is that as a bilingual voice talent, you can actually freelance with a lot of agencies. And oftentimes they're more willing to take you on because you offer something different. And, you know, they, they are trying to beef up a lot of having a, a variety of voices on their rosters. And so I want to say I'm at like six or seven regional. Of course, as you know, like every region has something new. The recent one that I just joined is in Oklahoma. So now I'm represented in Oklahoma, too. It's really cool, honestly, when you think about it. And when I tell my friends that are not voice actors that are more just stage or film, they're always like, what? <laughs> like, how do you have so many? I remember like when I first heard like, yeah, you can get an agent really anywhere. I was like, wait, where? And people were like, anywhere. Yeah. And it's crazy how this day and age, there's so much technology around us being able to work anywhere and with anyone. And it's it's so cool. I think it's just so cool. And I love that you got referrals. You know, we always hear that that's really the way to go and how amazing that you, you know, that it worked for you. I think that really speaks to not only your your hard work and your talent, but that you're a wonderful person because, you know, if you're like, hey, so-and-so, can you refer me? And they're like, I don't think so. You have to be a hard worker and you have to have talent, but you also have to be nice and easy to work with so that people want to, you know, take that on for you. Yeah, thank you. That that filled my day. My quota, my quota, my compliment quota. Um, yeah, I definitely think being kind, honestly, being kind is the key. You can be talented and be a terror to work with and you'll never get as far as you want to get. 
I'm not saying you could be nice and not talented and get, you know, but hey, probably will still get a little bit further than someone that's super talented and, you know, mm-hmm. horrible to work with. I pride myself in being, you know, respectful, kind, adaptable, and, you know, takes direction as well as as I need to. And, you know, just like all of those soft skills, as they like to call it, are the things that I use as my strengths. Um, Because like you said, I don't have a theater background like most people do, or a beautiful operatic singing voice, you know, so I have to use what I have. And marketing has a lot to do with that. (laughs) You know, you have to be approachable. Yeah. And and so tell us what else you like to do besides, you know, voiceover stuff. When I'm not at the mic, I'm most likely just marketing or researching or on Pinterest looking at really cute dresses for the summer. (laughs) Like, let's be real. (laughs) All valid. Um, I also do. I learned to sew during the quarantine. So I've been on a journey of learning, you know, to make things for myself. So that's really exciting. And I'm very much a um, DIY crafty person. So I I make candles. I like to learn um, how to mix cocktails and like make different recipes. So I I definitely try to round out my life um, beyond the mic because I do know how being super focused on a goal, especially at the beginning when you're just getting your feet wet and you're training and you're kind of gaining all this confidence in your career it can sometimes become all-consuming. And then that's all you do. You talk to voiceover friends, you do this, you do a challenge, you do this, you do that, and you don't give yourself a chance to truly develop outside, you know, things that are interesting outside of your career. And a lot of those things actually play into your career in the long run, you know? Like I, when I lived in Spain for two years, I was an an English teacher. I taught ESOL and um, for companies with employees. So it was like a, a corporate teaching. And so I learned a lot of business English. Fast forward to a couple years ago, I recorded an audiobook, which was an e-learning for Spanish language, teaching people how to speak English and Spanish. And I've also done bilingual children's books and apps that are specifically based at teaching kids how to speak English. So, you know, everything that you've done in life, everything that's interesting to you can always play into your career that way. Yeah, I love that. I, I, I feel like we spend so much time in these teeny tiny padded rooms alone and It's something I've loved about doing this podcast, actually, is like I get to hang out with people for an hour and like just chat, which I feel like is kind of rare when, you know, you're like, I have to do my marketing today. I have to do, you know, my spreadsheets. I have to balance my checkbook, whatever it is. And obviously auditions and, and, you know, you can kind of forget about the other the other things in the world. But I think you're right. It it helps to be well-rounded. I for years, even though I considered myself a full time voice actor, I still taught theater to kids because I love it. And I directed plays for kids and musicals. And it was, you know, it was so much fun. I would go and I would do that and I would be silly and come home and be like, oh, great. I booked a job. I'll record that now. Yeah, that's I feel like that's the key, because, you know, as we've learned through this last year and through the whole pandemic, your job can be gone in a second. We were very lucky that it actually did the opposite effect for voiceover if you had a great studio and whatever. I started booking a lot more. and. um But any job, any job in the world can disappear in a day. So you have to kind of have other things that you're, you know, either skills that you've learned or you learn to speak another language or you like to garden. You know, 
I definitely think everyone should have some sort of additional passion that they're that they love to do or or, you know, a skill that they learned. It's so important. And I think everybody is always seeking some sort of balance. But the more things that you have to kind of help that, I think it's important. Oh, for sure. I definitely keep my weekends semi-sacred, with the exception if I have a booking. Of course, I'm going to take on the booking. But if I don't have a booking and it's up to me, I definitely try to disconnect. I try to, you know, I do what I call sewing Saturdays or sewing Sundays. I'll take a day that I'm going to, you know, sew a dress. And that takes a whole day of like cutting the pattern and all that stuff. And it keeps me busy, but it also gives me the fulfillment at the end of the day. I have a project that I can see and wear. And it gets me out of the booth and it gets me like living life and making memories and all of that. And I think it's so important, especially nowadays. Yeah, it's really hard to have boundaries when your whole day is just like yours. And I've I have especially during this time, my husband has been home. We have a, a young daughter and he's sort of taken on more of the childcare role. In the before times, I would have like nap time or after bedtime to work on voiceover alone and and with a clear head. So that was like two hours and then maybe three hours. And now it's like the whole day is just whatever I make it. And in some ways, it's harder to have no constraints. So I've I've given myself office hours. So my office hours are like this time to this time every day. And that's when I can come up and, you know, do whatever I need to do. But having some sort of boundary and structure has been so helpful. And the other side of that is trying to take at least Sundays off. Because otherwise, again, it's just like, it never ends. There's always an audition. There's always an email. There's always something to do. So kind of giving yourself that little box is helpful, I think. Absolutely. I love that you said you have office hours. I think that's actually really smart because that is one thing when it comes to time boundaries, I am absolutely still working on it. Because if I do get an audition at like 10 o'clock, I've definitely been the type to be like, I'm not sleepy yet. Let me just run in and record it and send it in and get it off my plate. I'm definitely one of those people that likes to have my inbox at zero um, versus my husband who has 61,000, y'all. It gives me so much anxiety when I see his like inbox. (laughs) Um, We're totally like totally different people. Um, But yeah, so I'm the type that I love to go through. I'm a big to-do list maker. I'm a big um, routine you know, routines make me happy. And um, we have a little puppy. So he's helped a lot giving us a structure of like, you know, when we wake up, we do this, we do that, we take him out, we and then it's like, okay, now then I, I get my coffee, I sit down, I turn on the laptop, you know, it gives me that set schedule that I can follow, because I will absolutely fall into a Netflix trap if I sit on the bed and, and use my laptop. And then there went three hours just watching Netflix and not really doing anything substantial. Though I do believe that sometimes that's what your brain needs. And if you have the opportunity to take advantage, do it. I work with a coach sometimes who, not a voiceover coach, who um, talks about getting dressed for work, even if you work from home, that he has like work outfits. I mean, it's just a black t-shirt, but it's like that's what he wears to work. And so he it sort of like signals his brain like this is work time. So he changes into his black T-shirt and goes to work at his desk one foot away. I do that, too. I actually um, I recently started like working out, you know, I'm like, OK, the pandemic's easing on now. People are going to start going out again. I should start 
working on like my wellness again. Um, and so I definitely I have pajamas. I'm a huge pajama fan, like matching sets of pajamas, like nice, you know, crisp. So I will change out of my pajamas into my workout gear, then shower, then change into my quote unquote work clothing, which isn't necessarily like fancy. But I do agree it gives you a little mental switch where it's like, okay, work time. So what are your techniques when you get your auditions from your agent? Are you someone who, like you said, you sometimes you kind of jump in right away? Do you do a lot of like research and analysis or you just fire it off and see what happens? It depends on the actual um, audition. So I do sometimes, uh, I do some animation projects and I also audition for things that are more, you know, like audio dramas or things like that. And when in that case, when those come in, I absolutely take the time. I look at the character. What kind of voice am I going to go for with them? You know, what's their, (laughs) I give them a backstory in my head, you know, like, what do they like? Where, Where are they going? Um, If it's a commercial, it's a little bit less involved. I do obviously look at the specs and look at the words and I practice it in different, you know, intonations and just kind of hearing it out loud. Once I've figured out, okay, this is how it's going to sound or how I want it to sound to me and these are the specs, here we go. And then I just record it and send it out. Um, Of course, I do a little minor, you know, minor edits like mouth clicks if they're horrible. Um, but yeah, if it's a more involved project, like an animation project, I do take a little bit more time to to analyze it. For the animation projects, do you typically kind of settle in right away to a voice or do you play around a lot? I play around a lot. I play around every single day, all day, because, you know, when you have a dog, and I'm sure you feel the same way with a child, you can jump into silly voices and they don't judge you. (laughs) Yeah, so I'm always, always coming up with a weird creature sound. Like sometimes I'll make a weird gurgle and I'll be like, that's a good one. And, you know, I'll just kind of store it away. So when it comes to um, an animation project audition, I normally look at the photo if they have it or the description of the character and then just kind of play around with different sounds. Animation, I would say, was always my first love when it came to voiceover. That was like the driving force. Um, Just because I was always in drama club, I played Molly and Annie in seventh grade. I was definitely very much, you know, I definitely loved musical theater. I just didn't go to college for that. So animation is definitely where I feel comfortable and fun and free. But I don't have too much of a method. I feel like my my brain, it's just full of characters that just come out to play when they want to come out. And I let them. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, animation is so much fun. And I love that you get to pursue that and to audition for it. I wish there were more opportunities to even audition. That's like my goal for this year. I agree with you on that. I do um, I do think because animation, even though it's a big wide net, it does have buckets. For example, I myself have not done any anime. Um, not that I wouldn't want to. I would totally love it. I just haven't done it. And so there's so many different avenues just within that genre that you can find work in different ways, right? I'm so curious because I feel like we're sort of in a similar boat having very youthful voices. When you get a spec that's like gravitas, I've seen that one a lot, or like 40, you know, seeking 40, what, what, are, what goes through your head? What do, you, what do you do? How do you handle it? Oh, my gosh. So I definitely look at the, the commercial spot first, right? If it's for like, I don't know, 
AARP or something that's like extremely old. I know myself. I know my range. I'm not going to take away the opportunity of someone that's much more suited to book it. I honestly sometimes pass on things if I know I'm going to let that person, which probably will be a better fit, have a shot. If that means that my number's out of the of the hat, then that's okay. But if it's something a little bit more, I mean, full disclosure, I'm in my mid-30s, although I don't sound it. So if it's 40, that's not very far away from my age range. So yeah, so I kind of feel like what I usually do is I just kind of lower my voice and, you know, do more of a chest voice and just lower my my pitch a bit. Um, and for for the most part, it works out. I will say, though, I do I have much more success with like a 20s to 30 sounding voice, a millennial sounding voice or um, just a girl next door, you know, that kind of voice. So I go with my strengths. I think everybody has a chance in the voiceover world to fit in where they need to. And there's always a spec for you. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It is funny to to read them. And I'm like, I guess I'll try, but I'm not going to book this. So why? Like, yeah. Do I waste everyone's time, including my own and the agent and the casting director? Or, you know, do I just jump in, give it my best shot and let somebody else decide? Nah, let's not let's not submit that. It's really hard because, you know, we're all really trying to make a living out of this career. And so oftentimes, you know, it's hard to say no to potential dollar bills. But I've learned throughout the years that, you know, if you let one go or if you, you know, you didn't get a booking or whatever, it's okay. Like it'll kind of make itself up if you just keep going. You know, if you just keep working at it and you just keep there's going to be a yes for you at some point. And so I think not to take it super personal when you don't book something or when the spec that they sent you wasn't necessarily for you, you know, it's okay. Just let it go. You're going to, you know, there's going to be an audition that you'll book that is right for you. And I would say nine times out of 10, it always happens to work itself out. So I've just learned, have a little faith (laughs) that um, if we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, and if the universe was like, yep, you're supposed to be a voice actor in this life, that it'll all kind of pan out to where that's what I'll do. And it's all about numbers sometimes and persistence. Like you, you book zero jobs if you audition for zero jobs. So kind of finding that balance of, you know, I don't want to waste time, especially if it's a pay-to-play site audition and it's like, I can just tell it's not completely right. I usually will pass. Yeah. And I think you also start learning about like your own worth, your own strengths and what can you actually realistically book as you go along, right? You start learning like, hmm, I tend to book these kind of jobs. So when these types of jobs come around, since I tend to book them, I'll audition. You know, I have a better shot. I, I just think you learn yourself and you learn your vo- your voice and what you're capable of as you go along and grow. It's okay to pass on auditions that don't feel right for you because I do think it also helps the agent to get to know you and to say, oh, you know what? You're right. Maybe that isn't for you. And next time, send you out to something different. Because I think it is a little bit of a relationship of getting to know each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's important, especially when you have a bunch of agents. It, it can be hard to know them personally, and especially if they are, you know, in other con- other countries, other cities, or other countries, that you know that it's it's not the same as when you can just like pop into their office and be like, "Hey, brought you a donut. How's it going?" Right. And I guess when you do turn down an audition, then it teaches them as well because they have a lot of talent as well to keep up with. So it is a it's a you know it's a a double-sided advantage. So 
What advice would you give your first year voiceover self? I definitely would just tell myself to open myself up to all avenues of voiceover because at first I was super dead on like animation, that's all. And then it was like, wait, no, commercial. Oh, okay. Oh, e-learning? Oh, you know, I started realizing other things. So I would say to the first year, Shelly, you know, open yourself up, allow yourself to explore different genres and also, you know, really pay attention to just learning different techniques and learning the business side of things, not just the artistic side of things. When it comes to pursuing a voice acting career, it requires you to be an accountant, your own manager, marketing person, everything in one. And I think when you're first starting out, you don't think of that. You think of voiceover as this abstract art that all you have to do is show up at the mic and be like, yes, I'm here, you know, and in reality, there's things that you're doing behind the scenes that require you to learn these business skills. So I think if I could tell my first year, I would say, hey, first year Shelly, <laughs> learn the business side of things, pay attention to training, open yourself up to different genres, you know, don't be afraid. And uh, you're probably not going to end up where you think you'd end up, you know. So that's probably what I would tell myself. <laughs> I love that. Yes, I definitely did not end up where I thought I would have ended up. And it's great. It's even better. It's different. So great. I mean, most of my regular clients are industrial explainer videos, you know. And I love it because you know how many times I just... I have an inbox. They'll be like, hey, Shelly, can you record this? Boom, out the door, boom. And they're, you know, we work together so often that we get to know each other, like somebody got married or whatever. You know, it's much more of a, a working relationship. And, um, and it keeps me afloat while the auditions come in for agents and while the cool animation projects auditions come in and bookings. Those are like the cherry on top while I'm building these really cool working relationships with engineers and producers, you know, around the world. So I absolutely love that I landed where I landed and not where I thought I would land. I love that. Well, thank you so much for being here today. I think we covered so many cool topics and I think it was great for the listeners to hear kind of some of the same points that other folks have made along the way kind of highlighted again. Thank you so much, Stephanie. This was so much fun to just chat. It's really nice. I know we get paid to talk, as they say, but it's really nice to just chat. Shelly's vibe is so calm and friendly, and I can see why she's been successful in areas of voiceover for kiddos. My favorite part of our chat was talking about hobbies and exploring what else fills you up as a human being outside of being a voice actor. We spend so much time in these little booths talking to ourselves, and finding balance in this business is tricky, especially when we make our own schedules, so having constraints and taking days off is essential to not getting burned out. If you'd like to learn more about Shelly, I'm linking her website and socials in the show notes, which you can find at my website, www.stephaniepamroberts.com podcast. And please follow me on Instagram too, at stephaniepamrobertsvo, to check out previous guests, clips of old episodes, clips of my own voiceover work, a tour of my home studio, and more. Thank you so much for listening. And here's a little preview of next week's episode. Just honestly, just be yourself. Be, be whoever you are, because that's the thing that's going to set you apart from everyone else who sounds really clean and exactly the same. That's next time on Making It to the Mic.